Hello, welcome to another Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club, in which we select notable essays or books to read, take contributions from you, the listener, and try to analyze the work in a contemporary light. So this is me, Alex Hokuli, as always with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. Hey. Hi. Hello. Hello. Good to good to be here uh, in the reading club. Uh, we have trying to maintain a nice sort of library vibe here. Um, or maybe the library cafe, you know, kind of still the same sort yeah, of intelligent yeah. chat, library but cafes a, a slightly are a fucking higher, abomination. a slightly higher uh, volume no level. No fucking self-respecting <laughs> library should have a fucking cafe in it. It's uh, a not fucking, a library vibe because you, you can't talk the in the library. It's the postmodern, exactly, exactly right. No, so this is like the cafe on the other somewhere. side of the road from the library. Mm. Mm, yeah, glad we sorted okay. that one out. Yeah. So anyway, the date's Thursday, the 14th of January, and you're hearing this time, this any time from tomorrow, I suppose, because we'll try to get this one out quickly. Um, so our selections, uh, to tell you a little bit about the Reading Club in general, our selections try to balance books and essays, uh, older classics, as well as new works, uh, and do a mix uh, kind of thematically. So a mix of history and theory, uh, taking sociology, politics, and economics. Um, and towards the end, or maybe right at the end, I'll tell you a little bit more about what's coming up. Um, and what we aim to do uh, with this uh, as, as a whole. So this Ooh, month's episode, exciting. yeah, no, that to look forward to. Um, you can look forward to what there'll be to look forward to. Um, it's quite meta that way. Anyway, so this month's episode is a book about books. It's a book made up of book reviews, uh, which is really a, a particular sort of format. And consequently, we've had to think a little bit more about how to approach this one, because I think the normal way we do these wouldn't be appropriate to, to such a book. Uh, my idea, and, and well, it is really my idea because I, I've been the one who's produced this month's episode, uh, is to avoid talking too much about what the author, Wolfgang Strick, said about the other authors, and then debate whether Strick is right about what he says about the works that he reviews, uh, and whether the reviewed works are good or not, because I think that'd be too mediated. I don't think that would make good listening. Um, and anyway, we haven't read all the books that are under review, so it'd be quite difficult to discuss them. I think, I mean, looking through the description, uh, the list of books reviewed, I think I've maybe read three or four of them, and maybe familiar with another three or four, but you know, that's um, barely half of them. So uh, what we're going to do instead uh, is talk a bit at the beginning about books and book reviews in general. Uh, this isn't the sort of normal literary approach we, we take on the Reading Club. We try to stick to the politics. Um, but because we really have an opportunity to do it, we're going to do it here. Um, and I guess because this is a Reading Club and you're, you, listener, are willing to pay $10 a month for it, uh, we imagine you probably like books too. Um, and so uh, hopefully you'll uh, take something from our discussion of this. Hopefully we'll maybe learn something from each other discussing uh, discussing books and reading, which we're going to do here at the start. After that, we're each going to pick a favorite chapter that is a favorite review from the book and discuss it. So there'll be three of those. Uh, and then we'll turn to discussing transversal themes in the book. So I've picked out uh, about four, four or five of them, um, which cut across all the reviews. And we'll try to extract, I guess, what Streak is arguing about that and also try to um, advance our own interpretation, our own political views of it, um, rather than dwelling on the specific you know, books that are under review. 
Um, and also just let you know, I mean, we always take your questions and contributions and thank you very much for them as always. This time, exceptionally, because we're discussing these transversal themes, we've decided to incorporate your questions into ours. Um, so we're not going to call them out specifically. I hope that's okay. If you're offended, um, you can shout at us uh, in your favorite venue. Uh, Twitter's good. Shout us a shout at us on Twitter. It's a good place for hate. <laughs> right. So let's get, let's get properly started. Uh, Streak's book has three section headings. Capitalism, ideas, democracy. And Shriek admits in the introduction that these aren't systematic and nothing particular should be read into those into that selection of, of themes. As a consequence, that those aren't the themes that we're going to discuss, um, not least because things like ideas, uh, it's far too broad. Um, Streak also suggests some uh, more specific themes in his introduction. Um, so just to recap, he suggests, for example, political economy and the foundations of neoliberalism, the function of the European Union, especially monetary union, uh, the impact of a capitalist economy on democratic politics and vice versa, uh, and the particular uh, peculiar characteristics of the German economy and the resulting politics of Germany, uh, the EU and Europe. Um, so we're going to take some of those up, but um, maybe take take them from, from a slightly different angle. And I'll come on to the ones that we're going to do. Um, in a way, I think you could say the whole book is about neoliberalism um, because it's about the neoliberal era. It's about neoliberal politics and about neoliberal economy and neoliberal ideas. Um, but as I think we'll find out and we'll come to discuss, that might be a little bit of a lazy descriptor. Um, part of what we're going to do is try to be a little bit more specific about neoliberal, about, excuse me, about what neoliberalism is in its essence. Um, so that's one of the themes we're going to come to. The other themes we're going to come to are post-industrial society, uh, German hegemony of Europe, and uh, the future of capitalism. Oh, and, and one more, cosmopolitan delusions, which is a particular intellectual preoccupation of Strake's. So th those are the themes we're going to discuss. Um, but to get started off uh, in earnest, I keep saying that and I just keep talking. Um, I'm really going to get to it. I promise. Uh, this is, so as you said, reviews and what is, uh, what is the importance of reading and of reviewing books today? So as you said, this is a unique sort of book, Strick's Critical Encounters. It's a collection of reviews. Uh, Strick, uh, points out at the beginning that books are drawn out Gedankspiele, uh, which is uh, arrangements of long chains of ideas evolving step-by-step step out of each other. Or alternatively, a book can develop one dominant idea and then present and discuss it from new perspectives. It can reconstruct historical sequences, or it can offer a whole bunch of evidence in bright colors uh, to, to, to illustrate a central idea. Uh, in sum, he says, a good book is like a broad canvas, a large tapestry, something to feast on rather than gulp down like a piece of fast food. Um, I think that's probably quite important because a lot of the things that we consume, a lot of the things that we read even, um, are consumed like fast food, especially on the internet. Um, Strick also notes that a book is an educational experience, which actually sounds a lot better uh, in German. The word he uses, Bildungserlebnis, uh, excuse my pronunciation. Um, but this, I think, uh, at least for me, what this means is that when you're reading a book, it's the educational experience is not only what you what's on the page and what you take away from it, but also some general generalizable insights that you might make. So he makes this point about the book specifically about French political economy, that reading that you can start then applying those ideas or reflecting on how those apply to totally different contexts um, or the way that a, a book provides tangential thoughts, um, provokes tangential thoughts. I mean, I think that 
when I know a book's really good is when I spend probably about half of the time not reading it, which is to say, while I'm reading it, I stop and I start taking notes on a, on a related topic just because it provokes um, so many ideas. So I think to start off, maybe guys, let's comment on uh, reading in the age of the web and social media. Um, do you find it hard to read books nowadays? Um, and are there things that you do to make it easier? I'm, I'm sure this is a preoccupation of everyone listening to, to this. Yeah. I'm sure Phil has a, uh, he, he can't say that it's, it's too difficult for him to read books, given that this is his professional, <laughs> this is his occupation in part. I'm sure there's um, lots of academics who don't but, read books, but you know. There's plenty, yeah, I can econ- guarantee that. Economists, um, maybe. More um, than economists, or, political scientists well, as well. That's sad. But um, yeah, I mean, it is it is more difficult, isn't it, to have sustained engagement. I think it's, ne- for me at least, it's necessary to have a physical copy Um I can't read anything on screen, basically. Um, I just don't have the the attention span anymore for whatever reason. Um, and I think probably more important than that is when you have the physical copy, you can put it on your bookshelf and that gives you credibility um, in various what? Bookshelf credibility. When I was writing this outline, I actually thought, hmm, I hope this we don't go too much into kind of intellectual book wanker territory and actually talk seriously about reading. Um, but George uh, tripped at the first hurdle. Intellectual book wanker. That's um, sadly quite. No, but all the fetishism around me. all the fetishism around it, rather than actually <laughs> the intellectual content that you draw. I mean, I've, uh, I don't, I mean, I presume lots of people have had a similar experience, but my, it's not so much the web or social media. It's more the pandemic itself for whatever reason, perhaps the lack of stimulation from changes in environment being at home so much, but my attention span has been completely shot to pieces as a result of the multiple lockdowns and just generally the kind of atmosphere of social restriction and limit for um, the last year. Um, I think it could recover. I suppose the only thing that I could, I have noticed something and um, which is, and I convinced this is related to social media and the web is that I don't retain as much concrete detail and data as I once would have. And I don't think it's age related um, though. It might be at the, at the margins, but I think it's mostly related to the fact that I, I don't feel, I don't make the effort to retain information in the same way that I once would have, because I know it's easily available from with a Google search. And so I tend to focus more on the kind of conceptual structure rather than say important dates or figures or um, the important kind of, um, you know, the detail of a particular kind of causal sequence in a series of events. Um, and I imagine that's probably similar for many people too, um, that they're the, need, the kind of the feeling, the need to absorb information is um, felt less ten- intensely. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, obviously having a, a job, um, it means I can't read like successively for many hours um, a day during like the, the morning, which is, a, you know, for time for me personally, I have the most concentration and uh, attention. Um, so I'm often, <clears throat> when I get a chance to read a book, I kind of, you know, I want to uh, get some really interesting idea or something which will be like, okay, I've learned something. And, you know, who cares about dates and facts? I want an idea which will change my opinion, change my entire understanding of, of, of politics or the world. And obviously that's, you know, doesn't happen in 90 minutes reading a, reading a, a book. I mean, that's obvious. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think obviously for the podcast, we all end up reading a lot of books. I mean, more than we uh, would would anyway. Um, and I think it's made me be a little bit better at reading. I don't want to say badly, but just about being less perfectionistic in reading. Like sometimes you just need to consume a book in three days because you're going to interview the person, uh, you know, at the end of the week. And you've got to, you've got to get, a, get a gist of it because you don't have time because you have other um, responsibilities, job, etc. cetera. Um, and that's actually been kind of useful because I've, I was always too preoccupied in like absorbing every little last bit of the book. Um, and, and sometimes that can be an impediment to actually really getting an understanding of it. But then there are those books where it's just great to be able to take your time over it and you decide, like, I'm going to really study this. Um, I set myself the task over at Christmas, which I did, to read uh, Slavoj Žižek's first book, um, which was a real struggle. It was really difficult. Um, and, you know, I don't care that, for example, Phil's making the wanker sign at me for having said that. I, that I'm, I'm being intellectually serious. And if that makes me a wanker, then so be it. Um, but anyway, you know, that was just... It, it, it's nice when you are able to sit and sit with a book. And as I said, spend probably about 50% of your reading time actually not reading and instead tweeting ideas that you just had, which is maybe, you know, not that productive, but actually it does help you kind of digest things. Um, so it's, it's nice to be able to do that. And I think it requires really just switching off everything else um, to, and, and to really allocate yourself time to read rather than just trying to wedge in bits of reading um, amidst other things. Yeah, it's also nice, I guess, to do that and then to tell everybody that you've you've done it and that you're obviously, you know, very smart for having read this. Uh, this well, I, w- I was just telling my friends, you two guys, you know, I'm not telling anyone else. Um, yeah. So, you know. <laughs> so let's turn to book reviews rather than reading. Um, I mean, I liked Strake's pain to, to, to reading and how important it is, but also um, Strake introduces some discussion of why a book review, I almost feel like he's, having to defend why he's put out a book uh, composed of book reviews. Um, but it, but I think it's interesting. I think there's some interesting things there. Um, just to quote one thing that he says about it, um, I never read uh, a book expecting perfection. There's always something missing. And even the most outstanding intellectual productions and immediate reports, um, excuse me, uh, the most outstanding intellectual productions are immediate reports from the frontiers of knowledge, preparing the ground, if all goes well, for their future revision. So it's never complete. It's never finished. Uh, there's always a, a, a missing element. Um, maybe refer back to our episode with Todd McGowan on uh, on contradiction and how everything's contradictory. That may be, that's what it reminded me of. That even uh, the book, which seems perfect and whole, um, still has holes. Um, so with that in mind, uh, what do you think the merits and demerits of book reviews are as a form? And do you think do you think the job of a book review is to expose um, what's missing or maybe even plug that missing bit uh, in, in what's presented in a book? I think there are different sorts of book reviews, um, some of which are useful because they essentially summarize the book um, and so save you time from reading it. Another sort of book review is sufficiently critical that you don't need to read the book and it it tells you what the book's symptomatic of and that's also quite you know also quite useful um but i think the the best i the ideal sort of book review is a review of a book that you've read which gives a new perspective or critical questions um on that book and you know and then you feel like you're in a bit of a dialogue with the the book reviewer and i think that's the case of some of the the reviews of the books i had read um in in this collection um, and that's, I think, the, the ideal sort of book review, taking something really seriously, because obviously it takes ages to read a long book, a dense one, an important one. Um, 
And so, yeah, just, just things that you hadn't understood or you hadn't grasped on your reading, the book review gives another perspective and, you know, makes you think again about the book that you've read. Yeah, I mean, maybe what, what's a bad book review? Because I think a bad book review, in my view, would be a consumer book review, which says, should you go well, out and buy this book? Will you like it or not? Um, which I don't think is not, particularly useful. I'm not sure about that. If you've read any of the one star reviews on Amazon of some of the great books, um, <laughs> this is they are they are brilliant. Um, There's even a Facebook page like um, philosophy in one star Amazon reviews, which is uh, yeah. <laughs> great content. Ideally, you want, I guess there is a useless sort of review, which is uh, four stars, product um, received as expected in good time. It's like, <laughs> but I, but cool. I, the thing is, I didn't mean reviews by consumers. I mean, consumer reviews. That is to say, a book reviewer reviewing it for market purposes, telling the reader, should you buy this book or not? Is it good? You know, do you like in the way that a lot of uh, cinema review is, you know, should you go see this film or not? Those are bad book reviews, in my opinion. No, they have a place as well. If you're talking about genre fiction, for example, what's the best crime, new crime books? If if there were a reviewer whose judgment I trusted, it would help me navigate which uh, which book I'm going to read on my next uh, holiday. Yeah, okay. I guess that's more market. Yeah, like a market-oriented book review. I, I think the really good ones are, I think, as George has already said, ones that start a dialogue with the book. So they introduce what's in the book so they the reader is on the same page as the reviewer, um, but then starts kind of having a bit of a debate with it. And I think uh, the one that I'm going to talk about as my favorite one in this um, is definitely the case in kind of poking out what those holes are as well and uh, trying to drive at them. Um, so let's fill any comment on uh, book reviews. No. So then we're, so let's move on, actually. Uh, so we're each going to talk about which is our favorite chapter, that is to say, which is a favorite review in this book. Um, so we can go into depth, I guess, into more of some of these specific ones um, before we talk about the transversal themes. Uh, so, George, first of all, tell us what's yours. So a book that we've mentioned or discussed times on this podcast, um, Peter Mayer's Brawling the Void. I think the review of that is really is really great. I mean, it's a book that I've um, that I think is really uh, necessary for understanding contemporary politics particularly in in western europe um <clears throat> of course the main the main thesis to this kind of simultaneous withdrawal of elites and masses from the representative process leaving a, a void which has uh, all of these symptoms across um across europe and beyond so yeah i think the um it's a good i think it's of such a good review because there are a couple of questions which i hadn't thought of previously despite i think being relatively familiar with with some of the discussion around around there and i think this just comes from taking the you know taking the the central premise of mayor's book really really seriously and um, one of these is you know raising the political question of how to restart specifically representative democracy what you know i think this is an this is an, an important political task at the moment um one which i think large parts of the left don't really seem that interested in but it seems it seems completely crucial to me at least um and the second you know thing that i think comes out of this is in in straight's review is a question of why is it that the mainstream political parties in the west uh, severed ties to the social basis from from the 80s onwards um and i think this yeah i, I mean I, I my it, got, it really just got me thinking about the defeat of the organized working class and how this feeds into this process um of that mutual withdrawal 
Um, another point that that Strike makes, which I think is a, again, can I is, can I just say something on mutual yeah, withdrawal? Yeah, yeah. Um, just jump in because I think that's I mean that's interesting, and I think it's not a question that you can just have a pat answer to because I don't think that I don't think we know really why there was a mutual withdrawal, why elite, political elites stopped chasing after kind of or, or responding to their base, um, and why citizens also withdrew because um, it's not like it's not it's not. Um, I don't think it's self-evident. I mean, just on the part of elites, why was it in their interest to do that? Um, could they, because normally they have a base to attend to, you know, um, and why there's this simultaneous move? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's an it's an important historical um, story, which includes institutions like the EU, which I'm sure we're gonna gonna talk about, but also gets you thinking about the political sociology around elites and what the nature of legitimacy is and and how that could how that could happen um yeah so that was my that was my favorite chapter and that was one of those sorts of reviews of a book that you know that makes you think again of the book yeah that's very good i mean I, I also liked one thing about it which is bringing out why that book is um unique and what it does that it's different because you can read a book and go yeah that's brilliant but why, what sets it apart from other books? You know, you wonder, are there other books which say similar things to what Peter Mayer is saying? And um, Streak identifies the fact that a lot of political scientists um, either kind of do the political sociology of why um, basically people stopped being interested in politics um, or do the other thing of like why um, political elites do behave the way they behave. So, you know, engage in political marketing, only go chasing after swing voters, etc. Um, and he and that uh, mayor brings the two together and you think, well, that seems obvious, but the fact is no one else was doing it. It was mayor who did it. Yeah. It's always, yeah, it's, it, I mean, that, that means it's good, right? If it seems obvious after the, after the event. Yeah, that means right. you've, you've uncovered a good idea. Uh, Phil, you want to do yours? Yeah. So the title of um, the chapter that I'm that I've chosen to talk about is "Scenario for a Wonderful Tomorrow," and it is um, Strake's review of a book by Martin Sanbu called "Europe's Orphan." Um, so Martin Sanbu is, um, as some of the listeners may know, he's one of the Financial Times leading commentators. Um, and the book Europe's Orphan was about the EU crisis, the financial crisis and the debt crisis. Um, most of Strake's review of the book is um, concerned with German politics, though, and particularly with the leadership of Angela Merkel. And what was so um, revelatory is probably too strong, but what was so interesting to me about this chapter, this review, was just how much insight it provided into German politics. And it was particularly, I mean, it's particularly interesting at the moment because um, it's so difficult in the Anglophone and particularly the British press to find any account of what's happening in Germany at the moment, given that there's still this kind of ongoing prolonged search for a replacement um, for Angela Merkel, who comes to the end of her tenure this year um, uh, as a tremendously important and long-serving chancellor. And it's still not clear who might replace her um, or what the new kind of order would look like in a post-Merkel world. So, and this is despite, bear, you know, bearing in mind the fact that this is despite the fact that so much of the British press claims to be Europhilic, it's actually very difficult to find a good, good analysis of German politics in the um, pro-EU British press, a lot of it. Anyway, so 
um, what was interesting about this was also was that it took me back to the German to the refugee crisis. So 2015, um, when you had all um, the refugees um, pouring out of um, pouring out of um, through Turkey and out of Syria, um, you know, upwards of a million people, Syrian refugees, and also mixed in from other conflicts and groups. And famously, um, Angela Merkel kind of briefly opened the German borders, um, and refugees. Um, the refugees poured into Germany. And I remember, so what was particularly, this is what Strake helped me understand, because at the time I was very, it was tremendously puzzling to me that you had this outburst of seemingly extraordinarily radical um, enthusiasm. And you had so many people actually marching behind a old, very old fashioned radical slogan, open borders, abolish borders. Um, and it was an astonishing, it was a remarkable moment for me to suddenly see like a radical proposition um, burst onto the scene and to s- seemingly have so much popular support behind it. And it, it was kind of, it was puzzling to me. Um, and I never un- properly understood it. Retrospectively now, reading from the viewpoint of 2020, 2021, um, in some ways, you can see it kind of the open borders protest um, that you had this um, burst of popular enthusiasm for what seems such an unlikely and hitherto fringe political position that in some ways it prefigured some of the um, BLM protests that we've seen over this over the last year. And anyway, so um, it was a mis- it was a puzzle to me at the time, and I've never seen um, a better account of it than what I read in the review of Martin Sandbu's, in Strake's review of Martin Sandbu's book, and particularly that he explains how German domestic politics effectively engulfed Europe in this particular moment. So Angela Merkel, it was crucial. Not a, so it was crucial for Angela Merkel to retain, to recover moral high ground in the context of the Greek debt crisis when um, protesters all over Europe and in Greece in particular were walking around with placards of Angela Merkel with Hitler moustache and the tension over um, Greece's continuing in the Eurozone was so bitter and intense. Um, and at the same time, it was how... Um, the CDU and Merkel in particular affected a transformation to or attempted transformation to German demography and political economy so that the German politicians were particularly attuned to Germany's demographic problems and aging population, lack of population growth and how they're going to be able to support this aging population with such a large, um, given the fact that um, uh, their productive part of the Uh, German population is shrinking, and that, in effect, um, you had a lot of highly trained, um, highly skilled um, people among the refugees and migrants who came into Germany in that point. And what effectively Merkel achieved, according to to Strake in the review, was that she achieved this transformation by making it humanitarian. So instead of devising a kind of a systematic and justified and elaborated um, immigration policy um, and a policy of kind of growth and um, a justified account of why Germany needed a particular kind of migrant um, and how this might be, how they might work to convince Germany's voters and citizens. Instead, it was affected through the idea that they had to do it because this was what humanitarian, international humanitarianism and human decency demanded. Um, and so I was, anyway, I just found that a tremendously convincing account of a period that was still puzzling to me. And the humanitarian, and this I think is very important because 
that effectively the open board, what appeared as a kind of as a radical open border sentiment was in fact humanitarian rather than political. So it wasn't an idea of a transformed account of state and society, but rather based on this overwhelming um, spasm of sympathy for um, for and as alleviating human suffering rather than transforming society. And I think that's um, crucial to understand to the politics of that um, open borders moment. Um, and indeed, it passed very quickly. So it melted away um, and has kind of receded. Anyway, so um, an excellent account of German politics and a very other, hitherto puzzling moment of um, what happened with the refugee crisis at that particular point. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's absolutely right, though I, I think fingering, uh, finger, you know, pointing the finger, better put, at humanitarianism um, isn't exactly right. Because, I mean, the, what is at issue is Merkel's absolute prioritization of tactics over strategy, which is a point that Shrek made uh, in conversation with us when, when we interviewed him at the end of last year. It's her insistence or her mode of operation, which is almost like what, people like Tony Blair were criticized earlier, um, and people forget this in holding up uh, Angela Merkel as the leader of the free world and whatever, um, that she is as flimsy and flighty as a, a, a Blair, completely responding to media signals um, rather than having any kind of consistent plan. And that came across, but I mean, but I think it's consistent with what I said, right? Because yeah, no, no, it is. It is, is there is no vision. Of yeah. transforming German society, and, but but so I'm, I'm, what I'm getting to, to is that people might respond, yes, but so what? Because ultimately, what we are what we want to defend is not um, good capitalist rationale for you know uh, importing workers so that to raise productivity to make up for a labor gap, blah 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 blah. We we would say no, we should do things based on uh, common humanity, or should do things um, and exercise power in a much more a direct way. So if people are suffering, we should go and help them rather than hide behind some, uh, you know, kind of obtuse capitalist justification. Um, right. But I think, I think what, what, it, what should, so, you know, I, the point being that, look, something game good came of this. Why should we, uh, why should we care about the reasons? Right. Uh, who, why, why should we care if the reasons are. Um, well, look, I mean, Wait, are you asking or you're saying that this would be a kind of this would be what this, someone might say? This is what someone might say. Um, and, and I think the reason I think maybe the re answer to that. So to, you know, playing devil's advocate there and trying to come up with an answer is that, you know, Merkel didn't really have a plan for integrating these this the, these immigrants. Right. They, in fact, these refugees. Um it's not, and it's not systematic. So although it's good that those 1 million people, um, many of whom, you know, kind of stranded at Budapest station, um, being tossed from one country to the other with no, none of the European neighbors wanting to take them in, um, them acting as a bargaining chip with, uh, with the EU's deal with Erdogan as it would later become, um, you know, it's good that they, that, that they were able to find a home. But I think there, you know, it's not just about opening the borders, of course, that being better than maybe them stranded in a, in a kind of uh, citizenless no man's, la no man's land. But it's that they, they still need jobs. Many, very few were hired. Um, there probably wasn't a house, you know, they weren't, there wasn't housing built to accommodate them and so on. So I think that's probably the, the kind of answer to why not, why not just accept and, and cheerlead well, the, the big humanitarian gesture. Well, because, I mean, because it's humanitarian, I think, is the point. 
Um, so, you know, it's an unsustainable politics. So, I mean, obviously, kind of in with respect to the people concerned, um, their lives have improved. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't call it purely as a kind of as a kind of um, capitalist logic or something with respect to um, their integration into German society. No, no, I wasn't saying that was. Yeah, I was saying more of the kind of justification of, uh, you know, plugging holes in the labor market and things like that. No, sure. But I mean, you know, but those concerns aren't aren't small ones either, right? I mean, demography, productivity and growth are serious long-term questions for which answers are needed one way or another. Um, so the I think the issue is that it was humanitarian. So in the sense that it does nothing to address the um, source of the conflict or the, um, you know, the dynamics of the conflict and also that it wasn't justified democratically. So it wasn't justified as to why German citizens should have buy-in um, to this particular vision for a future for German society, but was justified on the basis of moral obligation and international law in order to boost Merkel's standing vis-a-vis um, EU rivals and competitors in the context of an intensely difficult and tortuous debt crisis. So I think all of those things factor in as well. And though the li- you know the lives of the people who've been absorbed into German society are certainly improved, but the question, you know, the conflict, the conflict, and the origins of the conflict remain. Um, and it and it and it and it worked to a certain extent, at least to uh, Merkel being awarded Time Person of the Year 2015, and her personal her personal brand was it helped uh, greatly by this. So it worked. It worked on her on her terms. Uh, let's let's move on to the next one um, because I'm sure some of these themes uh, will recur anyway as we go through. So my favorite one, I actually had difficulty um, difficulty choosing. I was going to choose the very first chapter on on the factory and, and the global factory, and actually I'm definitely going to read that book. Um, but I thought I'd have less to say about it. And actually, the one which really prompted a lot of thought was a review of uh, Quinslobodian's Globalists, a book which I read. Uh, I read and I read well and provoked a lot of thought and really, really helped clarify my own thinking of what neoliberalism is. I think it's a fantastic book. Um, we had Quinn on the podcast, uh, what was it, probably about two years now, two years ago now, but um, it's it's worth uh, reading that book. It's worth revisiting that episode or listening to it uh, if you haven't heard it. Two um, episodes. Two episodes, in fact. Yeah, that's right. Because we, we recorded the interview and then recorded a discussion amongst ourselves about it. Um, so why did I find a review about a book, a, a review praising a book that I've already read interesting or good? Because, you know, wh- what is it telling me that's new? Um, and I think what it does is extract what is partic- what is unique uh, in, in a similar way to what George was saying about Peter Mayer's book, about Streak's review of Peter Mayer, that Streak's review of Quinn Slobodian's Globalists teases out what is uh, what is special about it and what its, I guess, rivals in explaining neoliberalism don't, don't do. So for me, uh, I think it, that book threads a line between neoliberal ideas and neoliberal practice. And I think a lot of discussions about neoliberalism are one or the other. So it either focuses on Hayek or the kind of original theories of, of neoliberalism in the Mont Pelerin society, or it talks about neoliberal practice, and often these things don't match up. So you'll often um, find discussions about neoliberal, popular discussions saying neoliberalism is, you know, all about the market against the state. Um, and then people will point out, no, but there's a lot of state involved. Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher took power and the size of the British state 
expanded. So how do you make those two match up? And what uh, Slobodian's definition of neoliberalism does, and what Strake brings out, is precisely that there is a unity there. Um, and that unity is firstly based on a vision um, which he uh, refers to, you know, Adam Smith in this, um, as uh, the proprietor of stock is a citizen of the world. Basically, that capital can travel anywhere, um, and that capital should be subject to the same um, legal frameworks anywhere it goes. Basically, to prevent economic nationalism, and that's what's really at 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 key the key issue there. Um, that the old liberal idea, and this is again, this is how liberalism relates or rather neoliberalism relates to the old liberalism of the 19th century because sometimes they seem like really different things um how are they connected well so it's this idea of you know the proprietor of stock is a citizen of the world but how do you make that a reality in a world of very powerful states of monopoly capital and so on um the the solution is to encase the economy which is the way that slobodian describes it um so what you need is a is a is the state well, you need two things in relation to the state. On the one hand, you need to prevent the state from interfering and distorting the market. Well, at the same time, you also need a strong state, not just to enforce contracts or to negotiate the harmonization of laws internationally, but also to hold off from any other actors from distorting the market. So you need the state there to uh, clamp down on or, or to restrict in some way trade unions uh, or to clamp down on clientelist practices. Um, basically anything that might distort the market. And that explains why the state has such an important role in neoliberalism, um, which, which, uh, is a, which is how it's different, I guess, from the old liberalism. Um, what, what's great about Strake's review is one, that he brings this out. And he, I felt like reading what Strake was saying about the book, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I thought about the book too. So it reaffirmed, I guess, my own understanding of it, which is always uh, which is always nice. Uh, you go, you know, Wolfie's got my back. We're, we're on the same page here. <laughs> so that's always nice. Um, but he also develops certain things and, and teases out um, ideas. For example, why can neoliberal politicians sometimes be anti-immigration when that seems to run directly counter uh, to one of the four freedoms, um, you know, one of them being the, the, the freedom of labor to move, uh, move between countries? Why should neoliberals be against that at times? And Strait teases one thing out, which is that if you have growing anti-immigration sentiment, that might lead to demands for economic nationalism. So some restriction of immigration is a way to actually quell uh, those passions, as it were, which is why uh, right-wing neoliberal politicians, and not even right-wing, center-left ones too, have um, adopted sometimes anti-immigration attitudes um, as a way to basically preserve the market to, to kind of throw the dog a bone, uh, as it were, dog the dog here being uh, citizens. Uh, and the other thing I think that Strake does in this review is uh, do that thing where he points out what's missing. You know, even in a very, very good book, uh, there's always going to be some element that's missing. And so Strake teases out uh, two things that that Slobodian could have done, or maybe maybe not should have done, because it's a it's a book of scholarship um, and, and not of political polemics. But he, he points out how uh, Slobodin doesn't discuss how the left has bought into neoliberalism, the way that economic nationalism has even become the enemy on parts of the left, principally with regard to immigration, of course, um, a defense of open borders, but also applies more broadly a certain skepticism towards economic nationalism because it you know, presumably uh, merely conceals a, a, a barely hidden fascism behind it. Um, you can see this in kind of opposition to, to Trump's trade deals, you know, or at least skepticism with regard to it. Um, and the other thing is on the EU, where um, the obvious solution, 
reading Slobodian's uh, very good work, is that the solution to the EU seems to be exit, which is to say, um, you know, to use Alfred Hirschman's uh, famous three categories of voice, exit, and loyalty as, as your kind of three, three kind of solutions, um, that exit seems to be the only response because um, it's an, it, <clears throat> excuse me, the EU, especially over the past 20 years, has become the perfect neoliberal construction, um, almost almost ideal, um, this sort of economic constitution for Europe, um, which encases the economy and, and prevents politics from interfering in the economy. Um, and so the only solution seems to be exit from the EU, um, which is somewhere Slobodin doesn't go, but but um, I guess Streak's review is great in teasing out that uh, that kind of opening there. I mean, I, I think it's the most important <clears throat> review in the book. In one sense, I think if you if you want to try and boil down the whole um, intellectual project in of of the the book that that, that uh, or the collection of essays that that Strait's written, I think you I would argue you'd find it here. Um, and I think it's a it's a it's a really brilliant review of a of a really important and and great um, book. But it's also more than that. I think the the, um, the some of the kind of exactly as you were saying, Alex, some of the implications, um, particularly political implications of of the analysis, um, are, are are of primary importance, um, you know, to to European politics today, and of course, you know, in in Brexit context as well. I don't know if we want to uh, talk about some of the um, the themes around neoliberalism right now. We can come we can come back to them. Um, but I think, yeah, just, I think if, I think this would be sort of the starting point, if, if, um, uh, people are going to read one review from the book, I would say this, this one is a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but let, let's turn to the first theme and we'll, we'll try to deal with this first one relatively quickly, but it, it ties very neatly to what our understandings of neoliberalism are and also to the misuses of the term neoliberalism where other ones would better apply. And I think, uh, I try and I often fail to be more careful and not going, oh, this is neoliberal, this is neoliberal, that's neoliberal. Um, because, of course, anything which is a, a, a particular manifestation of a facet of today's world, you could say is neoliberal. Um, but that's being sloppy. So in, in the... No, in, you are neoliberal. You're neoliberal. I'm, you're neoliberal. You're neoliberal. Uh, <laughs> and so... Being uh, try, trying to be a little bit more specific, the first theme is post-industrial society and the coming of post-industrial society, which is actually the title of a, of a totally different book. But um, it's a theme which kind of runs across a lot of the essays, uh, a lot of the reviews, sorry, in this book, and is most explicit in chapter one, which is the review of Joshua Freeman's uh, Behemoth, um, which is a story of, uh, of of the factory, basically, across different countries. Um, in Strake notes Behemoth. that... Behemoth? I think you can pronounce it however it's like it's like uh, hegemony hegemony potato potato you can pronounce it however you like don't behemoth nah. behemoth <laughs> behemoth i think behemoth I think anyway fine. so um there's there's kind of some interesting things that uh, he pulls out at the end of the 1968-69 strike wave in germany there was attempts to move beyond taylorism towards you know away from the kind the forms of discipline that you had in factories um, throughout the early part of the 20th century um, towards uh, a more humanistic form of industrial work. Um, it's interesting that he notes that this failed um, because it didn't satisfy workers and it didn't really satisfy bosses. But this is obviously a, a form of, I guess, collaboration between capital and labor to change 
the labor process to make it more amenable to workers, to make workers happier in their job. Um, Strake notes, though, that this is this is a typically social democratic approach, which is rather than uh, the Marxist approach, which might seek more liberation from work, this sought liberation in work. Um, but what's what's interesting there is that there were certain ideas about perhaps more having more flexibility on the job, which become important ramparts of neoliberalism. Um, other elements to note uh, is also kind of transformation in um, in the factory, how the factories are are constructed, where they are found in cities or outside cities as they increasingly are, um, and the size of the factories. And these these are all important things in in changing our in in transforming uh, our social landscape. So Strake notes that there's no large agglom agglomeration of production or of workers anymore. That what's centralized nowadays is only management. Management is centralized at the global level, um, but production is dispersed all over the place and often uh, dispersed into maybe smaller factories or factories at the edge of cities, rather than having this great concentration of factories in city centers as you did in the 19th uh, and early 20th century. Um, Strick notes that workers in turn work on what they want and the alienation from their work, uh, the alienation of their work from their lives which is characteristic of the factory in the industrial age, is a thing of the past, which is to say there's been a melding of the private of private life and your work, um, which is something that we I think we all know, you know, especially if you're a freelance worker where your uh, your work kind of bleeds into your free time and vice versa. Um, if you're an Uber driver, you're complaining you... about being a podcaster, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Why are you I, like complaining about doing your job for your listeners right now? No, I'm, I'm going not, to the I'm podcast factory. I, I love to, this. I love you. The mass I love produce some episodes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just put it on an assembly line. Um, I think that, but you know, the Uber driver who can deter, who can be kind of at leisure, but take up jobs whenever he wants. Of course, the reality is he has to be taking up jobs all the bloody time um, to make enough money. But you know, the idea there is is this um, bleeding between private and public, between leisure and work. Um, so the question here is: um, Do you think industrial relations today are understood, you know, more popularly? as providing more freedom than in the past? Do people still look back at kind of the old forms of factory discipline, um, long chains of command and, and hierarchically organized factories um, as more unfree than today? And that today, um, the flexibility that, you know, the gig economy provides um, actually does provide more freedom than in the past. No, I mean, I think, I think, it, I think it is understood in those terms. I think people buy into the idea that all this flexibility is um, emancipatory and liberating somehow. I mean, and insofar as um, these earlier demands for reform and flexibility, how far they were complicit in new forms of oppression, I think in as much as they disconnected um, their critique of Fordism or those earlier arrangements, however you want to describe them, insofar as they disconnected it from capitalism itself, from the oppression of the wage labor form as a kind of um, as a particular kind of social relationship they were complicit in producing the new era of um, kind of flexible fluid labor arrangements that are sold to us as emancipatory but are in fact um, oppressive in all sorts of new and different ways mm. so the left is complicit to that degree and i think that's the general pattern of post-68 politics so um all the kind of um all the reforms that, or all the um, changes 
um, policy to social policy, economic policy, cultural policy, everything or all the kind of cha major changes that have the liberalization of life that has happened since 1968. In as much as it is, um, has happened within capitalism, it has um, inevitably been uh, found ways to express new forms of hierarchy and domination because it's been led, molded around uh, an essential relationship, which has been kind of um, forgotten and put to one side, which is in itself um, based on domination. Well, not, not so much forgotten and put to one side as deliberately masked and, um, no, and covered. Yeah. Yeah, and, in, yeah. I mean, and covered good, by these new forms as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a good. I mean, it's a good. A good point. The transition from the the trained gorilla of Taylorism to the um, um, to management today, giving advice, uh, not orders, and you know, we're all we're all flexible. Um, we don't have. We're not constrained in factories anymore. Of, of course, it's it's good to not be in the the physically dangerous and demanding conditions of of industrial factories. Um, but we haven't got the the essential freedom <laughs> quite uh, quite yet um and i also say that somebody who's who's currently not just working well not working from home but but living in my office that that point about the the breaking down of uh, like a, a kind of private and um and work life alex i think is uh yeah hits home at the moment <laughs> yeah but embraced by vast swathes of the middle classes i mean that's very evident as a result of the pandemic um, and I don't think it, it's not just kind of um, liberation from the commute and losing resources. It's also, um, you know, there's also a buy-in. And I think that speaks to some of these, some of this that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. A bit of self-exploitation at home. No, not like that. Self-exploitation at home. Anyway, <laughs> um, to, to move on, uh, well, sticking on this theme, but, but another aspect which relates more directly to industry specifically I wanted to ask, what, what do we think have been the psychopolitical effects of the disappearance, and I put that in quotation, scare quotes, uh, the disappearance of industry, which, re, which is to say, really, it's relocation. It's relocation maybe to the outskirts uh, of cities, to small towns, um, and indeed, um, it's export to, to other countries, you know, especially to the Far East. Um, how, how do you think that has changed our conception of politics? Because um, I would argue, just, to, just as, a, as, as a kind of a starter, that a lot of environmental politics is based, is premised on this uh, disappearance of, seeming disappearance of industry, because we're, we're, we're increasingly disconnected from direct production. Um, even if you work you know, in the services, uh, you're not directly necessarily crafting something, manufacturing something. Um, and as a consequence, we, we kind of, have a, a dream of, of kind of frictionless cities, um, cities kind of beyond dirty production and that dirty production has somehow ceased to exist. It doesn't, it's not something that really concerns us. And as a consequence, we can't, we have these dreams of, um, of just living cleanly, you know, um, which, which ignores, the, ignores the, the fundaments of what makes of all the stuff that we need to live on. Uh, absolutely. But uh, and this has been picked up by Christopher Lash, who we spoke about in an earlier episode of um, of this reading club, where he talks about the illusion of freedom that comes with being so many steps removed from the actual process of um, production in society, of work, of material um, transformation of the world around you. Um, and, you know, this evident in many kind of uh, layers of the professional um, professional middle classes where um, it uh, feels like it's um, very imaginative and creative work. And in fact, it is um, 
deep and kind of uh, deeply ensconced in illusion as to how much um, capacity there is to change the world through ideas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think probably relatedly, the for, as production becomes less visible, um, consumption, that's, you know, that's what's politicised. That's what the... Um, um, and this links to other things which which Strake has written even in fact uh, um, you know we see ourselves as as consumers citizenship and political action is seen in terms of consumption rather than collective control of, of production which is a uh, um, <clears throat> probably you know I don't think that the disappearance or the relocation of industry fully explains that but it's all part of the same um, the same general trend yeah, very good. Uh, let's move on to theme number two, which is misunderstanding neoliberalism. Um, and there's several different angles to this. The first is uh, ordo-liberalism, which is a, a bugbear of strikes. And a, it's a bugbear because it's brought in to explain German political economy. Why does Germany behave the way it does in Europe? Why does it behave the way it does domestically? Um, so one one case, for example, um, is the, and I'm sure you, you've heard about this before, you know, the Germans are really averse to hyperinflation um, because of the experience of 1920s, and therefore they always pursue a hard money policy. They do everything that's possible uh, to prevent inflation because they've been scarred by, by that history. Um, Street points out, no, Germany's structural condition as an over-industrialized national economy is what's at stake. It's something about the present material reality and the interests uh, in maintaining that status quo, which lead to policies, uh, to anti-inflationary policies. Um, later in the same review, this is actually in, in chapter five, if you happen to be following along closely, um, which is a review of various books on Germany. Uh, in that same review, uh, we find that Germany's adherence to hard money is seen as a religious devotion to ordo-liberalism. Um, again, it's this idea, um, and I, I don't have uh, exactly the knowledge to, to explain out in too much detail what ordo-liberalism is. Um, if you guys want to have a go, please jump in and do so. Um, but it's just, you know th this idea of, um, of a very uh, anally retentive economy. Um, and this is part of a wider discussion that reappears throughout the book, um, which I guess it could be described as is German behavior in Europe. Um, it's, it's hegemony of the EU. It's uh, sticking to a very uh, to, to, to hard money, to, uh, to, to euro, which is overvalued, um, especially for those on the European periphery. Um, is this behavior mad or is it bad? Um, so that is to say, is it driven by an irrational adherence to outdated or ineffectual ideas that harm Germany's own interests, um, such as the hard money policy, or are they just selfish? That is to say, are, is it bad? Um, or is Germany guilty of not wanting to help their Southern European brothers and sisters because they're selfish? Um, and Streak finds in the, the ordo liberalism explanation, both factors. Um, so he asks, you know, kind of ironically, does there, does Germany's Protestant ordo liberal desire to punish prevent them from understanding their own interests. So again, this is something that always, that seems to recur um, throughout the book and, and, and it's a constant enemy of streaks. This explanation that adds that Germany is bad and mad and Germany um, pursues these policies, which are not only self-defeating, but are especially really bad for the rest of Europe. Um, and it's just because they're intellectually wed to this ordo-liberalism. So the question here is, um, what is streaks political aim in claiming that these ideological factors, namely an adherence to, to this economic doctrine, um, 
what is what is his aim in claiming it's overstated? What you know, why does he think this isn't such a factor? Well, I mean the the basic point being, I suppose, that it's not to it's not to um, understate the scale of the problem before us. Um, the conceit that it's simply kind of that, say, um, Germany's uh, domination of Europe is the product of a you know kind of an illusory um, an illusory set of ideas suggests it can be more easily changed than it can when in fact it's much more structural, and this is out in um, in many of the reviews the deep underlying um, questions of how Germany is organized. So to turn uh, to the to well uh, kind of another issue within this theme of misunderstanding neoliberalism, um, I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions of, of neoliberalism. I already hinted to that in discussing Strick's review of Slobodian's book uh, of Globalists, um, but there's it, it reappears actually throughout the book. Um, Firstly, in uh, chapter two, which is Strick's review of Fogel's book on money, um, where Strick notes that it's it's what Vogel does, which is really useful, is break with the antinomy, uh, antimony of uh, market versus state, of economy versus politics, um, which is often part of the popular misrepresentation of neoliberalism, that it's all about market against the state. And, and therefore, you know, we need more state welfare to counteract neoliberalism, uh, misunderstanding that they're a pair, um, historical and systemic interdependence, uh, Streak puts it. Um, that there's no state sovereignty without credit. There's no credible finance without sovereign reinsurance. That is to say, you know, states bailing out failed banks. And that is precisely at those crisis moments that the distinction between market and state is exposed as a myth. Um, we can intellectually separate them, but in reality, they're they're conjoined at the hip. Um, we also find this in Strake's review of Mark Blythe's book on austerity, which uh, I imagine maybe lots of you will have read or at least be familiar with, um, because it's one of the kind of foremost arguments against austerity politics, um, which obviously, um, I guess his argument became very popular um, as most Western economies were uh, were subjected to austerity over the 2010s. Um, the, in the review, he, he discusses whether, you know, this idea of austerity and, and also by extension neoliberalism, uh, neoliberal policies as a whole are wrong ideas or are uh, a product of real interests. Um, and this sums it up, an idea that neoliberalism is founded on bad ideas about how to manage an economy, self-defeating ideas, that if only states decided to spend more, um, they could break out of this austerity trap. Um, and basically, you know, if we only followed Keynesian solutions, uh, things would work out better. And Strick gets to it that really we have to ask, why aren't those being pursued, first of all? Whose interests, in whose interests is it to maintain the, the, the current state of affairs? And also perhaps a bit more deeply that there's maybe more material and structural reasons for neoliberalism, which aren't just people adopted these ideas because it was in their interest, but something made neoliberalism happen. Um, so first of all, thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the as I said previously, I think the, the review of Slobodian, that's a key chapter of, of the book or the key review. Um, and I think that... What comes through really clearly is that the way to understand neoliberalism is as a legal framework for a specific sort of economy, a cosmopolitan economy. And that that quote from 
um, Adam Smith about the proprietor of stock being necessarily a citizen of the world is 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 brilliant. I think that really hits a nail on the head, and it and it does, I guess. I guess there are on the one hand popular misconceptions or quite simplistic ones about kind of, you know, it's all about the market, but there there are also, I guess, political understandings of neoliberalism on the left, um, which are, would lead you to a different political strategy. So the idea that it's not, I mean, because this, this understanding, I think that, that, that Strake puts forward or takes from Slobodian is quite institutional. It's quite, you know, there's a heavy emphasis on the legal encasement of um of not of the economy actually but of democracy um and this is very different to a you know to someone like david harvey's idea of neoliberalism as a class war from above or will davis's idea of um neoliberal logic being essentially a quantification the happiness industry is i think a really good illustration of these ideas um and this is you know this is what's come through i think in in contemporary politics around the eu that this is the pinnacle this is the instantiation of this um of this kind of political project and its apotheosis and um in this review as well i think straight talks a lot about what what the political responses are to it um but yeah i think yeah it's it's just a i think a really important way to way to frame it that it is it is an institutional legal um project yeah, I, I also I also think that you know again to repeat uh, to recapitulate a point I made earlier, but I think we we have to be we should try to be precise when we use these terms. I don't just mean we; I mean people in general, because a lot of the things which are discussed as consequences of neoliberalism, social cultural consequences, um, changes to subjectivity, a focus on competition, individualism, atomization, whatever, should be described in their own terms. Because in some ways, you know, all of those are. Uh, internal dynamics to capitalism, and they were there before neoliberalism. Um, and whatever kind of capitalist formation that comes after neoliberalism will continue extending them. Unfortunately, you know, if if nothing is done about it. So when we when we talk about you know if you're talking about individualization, we should use that term rather than talk about neoliberalism as this kind of uh, catch-all because um, you know again it might exceed it might it, these factors predate neoliberalism and and could uh, go beyond them because it's we're really talking about is capitalism. It's not just neoliberalism that that we if, that if we somehow were able to go back to uh, you know 1963 um, that these things would all be kind of completely erased. Uh, they might only be more muted. Um, so with that yeah. in mind, one, one more question is uh, specifically on this theme: How would you go about popularizing the correct understanding of neoliberalism? Um, what do you, what, how would you try to convince someone of what neoliberalism is in essence, Phil? Memes. I don't think it's about, I don't think it's about correct understandings being particularly important, but I do think it's about this, the enormous success of the project, which, um, the, the, which constrains democracy institutionally in a way that prevents it from extending into domains where it shouldn't be. Um, and that this is, this is an anti-democratic, obviously, um, project and an anti-socialist one. And clearly, in discussions around Brexit, it was not a very successful argument made um, that this is the nature of the EU and that this is the position that the quote-unquote left should should take, i.e. to be against the EU for, for this precise reason. So, yeah, how you'd go about popularising this? Well, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> 
I mean, no, no, but but no, how would you, you go about ideas? it? But, but what would no, but what would be your popular? You know, like what's your what's your two sentence explanation of what neoliberalism is? You know that we- I think you've got to find a way to cut against misconceptions. I mean, I think that's the way to do it. So it's normally understood as kind of you know as we've indicated a kind of a culture of greed, of individualistic hedonism and materialism, um, of consumerism, of um, bankers getting paid too much and getting away with a lot of stuff of cultural changes rather than specific institutional and legal changes over the course of the last 30 years. Yeah, um, globalization, free trade, et cetera. All these yeah, it's things. always conflated with all sorts of things. So, I mean, I think, you know, the only way to really cut through is to, you have to cut against um, misconceptions or um, or primitive and kind of superficial understandings. Yeah, I think, I think- w- w- one more thing no, is I- just that, which Streak is really good in pulling out from... Um, the Slobodian review is that it's not just it's he actually kind of flips Slobodian slightly on his head. Slobodian's explanation of what neoliberalism is it's an it's a, a, an attempt to encase the economy to encase the economy to, to to protect it from politics. But it's actually the other way around. Suggests Streak neoliberalism is an encasing of democracy to restrict democracy to a very limited range of action, especially to cultural things, which is why culture wars uh, explode in neoliberalism because you don't have the avenues to uh, politically intervene in the really important stuff. So you uh, d- divert yourself to cultural struggles. And so maybe saying neoliberalism is an encasing of democracy. It's a better way to describe it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I alluded to that that point earlier. And I think that's that's precisely the, the, um, the challenge that's facing us at the moment. I think the the way I'd put it maybe to, to simplify, to oversimplify, is that you can have, and I think this is one of the main themes of, of the book, it's democracy versus capitalism. The common sense idea that capitalism and democracy are, are, can coexist or even that you can have um, capitalism as the, the, the best way to... Um, realize democratic project is not true it's one or the other and democracy is the only um the only collective power that we have so that's what you have to promote and try to extend yep very good I, as we've referred to it so much um it's episode 74 our interview with quinn slobodian and then episode 75 which is for patrons only that means you guys uh there's a discussion just between the three of us where we unpick what we learned from uh from episode 74 so it's 74 and 75 if you want to go uh check that out um so to move on and um, the next theme is german europe um and the the, the first issue is i guess uh Hegemony in Europe, in, in which is uh, refers to Streak's review of Perry Anderson's discussion of hegemony. Sorry, that's very several mediations there. Um, to pull out a quote, um, what must be understood is that the business of post-heroic German society is business, not physical violence. So um, Germany's hegemony, I mean, it's not it's not something that is a product of force of of coercion. Um, but the, but the question then is, uh, Streak asks, how can such a country, that is Germany, voluntarily incapacitated and weaned off the sovereign use of military violence to the satisfaction of its allies be considered hegemonic? How does German, in, uh, German hegemony uh, in Europe actually function? What is it based on? Um, Streak's answer is that German, Germany's weapon is its hard currency. Um, so the, the question that I, I want to ask is, why does or did the rest of Europe go along with this, especially you know for a country like Italy? Um, why did it buy into this German hegemony? Why does why did it fall apart? 
Why did, Why did the French? Yeah, yeah it's a historic really, miscalculation, wasn't it? It's a really interesting. I'm not sure though it is a historic miscalculation because, well, if it is one, then it's one the French have made twice, right? Um, so it's. What do you mean? Well, the first time, better Hitler than Bloom, right? When they, when the French elite kind of essentially um, become collaborators with the invasion of France, they'd rather be ruled by Hitler than they would by Leon Bloom, the Jewish leader of the Jewish socialist leader popular leader of the French working class at the time. Um, and I think so. I'm not, I don't think that um, Strake provides an answer in this, um, in this, in this series of essays in this book. Um, but it, he identifies the question because I think the question, why does Europe go along with it is much more difficult question than why does German domination take this form, which I think, you know, given German history in the 20th century is more straightforward. And I mean, he, you know, he lights upon the, the issue in terms in Italy, and maybe, I mean, maybe this is the, it can stand in, is the um, common currency, which the German, oh, sorry, the Italian bureaucrats, when they were setting up the um, common currency, the euro zone, it was called the vincolo esterno, um, the, um, the external tie, um, the way in which they could, um, the kind of the external constraint would allow them to reshape Italy from the outside without having, because the ways of uh, trying to kind of finagle Italian society internally were exhausted or too difficult or too many concessions had to be made. And perhaps that's, I mean, perhaps that's the shift that we've seen over the course of the 20th century. Um, but what's striking, I suppose, if you begin with better Hitler, better Hitler than Bloom, the slogan of the French bourgeoisie and the ruling class in the 1940s when they collapse before the Nazi invasion. And you get to the 1990s and the early 21st century with the vincolo esterno, the external constraint, as a way of managing um, domestic political economy and class conflict. We still have the same essential, you know, it's still the same essential kind of maneuver. How do you, um, if you can't kind of uh, get the buy-in of your domestic population and you can't manage them effectively, you pivot to this kind of supranational or transnational or external machina to try and resolve your internal problems for you. And it's a recurrent phenomenon. And like, so I don't think there's an answer, but he identifies the question because it is a genuinely, it is a genuine puzzle. Um, and one that evades most social scientists and political scientists because so many of them are so dazzled and enraptured by the cosmopolitan visions of the European Union. So the idea that there is a, an actual kind of puzzle here it never occurs to them. Well, yeah, I mean, it's My, the degree of path dependency there as well, you know, that which is always a, a difficult thing to explain socially. Why do you keep doing things um, because you always did them that way? There is, but I mean, also the degree of damage and irrationality is so great, you know? No, but, but, that, but that is out. the question. That's the question, right? There's so much irrationality and yet people continue doing it because that's what you. That's the course you set yourself on earlier when it made sense for certain reasons. Um, it made sense for elites. Now it doesn't even make sense for Italian elites, and yet they continue doing it. So, yeah, I mean, so sure, but I mean, well, I suppose path dependence maybe is just another way of restating the problem or redescribing the same issue. Yeah. So, but like I say, I mean, I don't think the 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 sheer kind of um, the 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 mystery of it, I think, isn't appreciated because. Like I say, there is so much buy-in, particularly among Europe's intelligentsia, into um, the 
cosmopolitan visions, in fact, kind of supranational neoliberalism of the European Union? Well, yeah, I mean, that's there's I guess there are two separate questions. And one is why particularly the, did the French elite um, in particular think that having a single currency would be so much more beneficial to themselves than it would be to to Germany. And that's what I think was a historic miscalculation. Um, and then, yeah, why do they continue to go along with it? And that, I think that idea about the explanatory power of the kind of the relationship between elites across countries um, is, is which is central to ideas around member state theory and all that sort of thing is, is something which escapes a lot of, um, a lot of political science. But I'm not sure that they thought it would be so much better for them. I mean, um, when Mitterrand kind of, um, you know, so the trade offer streak identifies as German re- Germany gets reunited in return for a common currency. But the hope was that the common currency that was rooted in the German economy and um, kind of modeled around the Bundesbank and the Deutschmark would act as an external constraint, enabling Mitterrand to resolve internal problems of French economy that he was unable to do with the French working class. So he didn't choose the path of outright confrontation and destruction of the labor of the labor movement as Margaret Thatcher did. And instead, he went for the external constraint. Um so the same, you know, I mean, you know, not wishing to kind of make too fine a point of it, but the same manoeuvre that the French right performed in the 1940s, the French left performed in the 1990s, obviously not as kind of brutal and barbaric as German occupation. And the French haven't suffered from the Eurozone as much as the Italians, the Spanish, the Irish or the Greeks. Um, but the manoeuvre, you know, the essential kind of political manoeuvre is the same. It's a way of resolving internal problems that the ruling elite or the government is incapable of doing. So, I mean, I think that was, you know, what pushed them into it. The mystery is why do they? Con- why does it continue? Yeah. So, I, one speaking of internal uh, resolutions uh, to, to issues, I think one of the themes that comes up, and I'm just going to kind of nod at this. I don't know if we want to necessarily discuss it, but one of the recurring themes across the book is this idea that Germany treats Europe and maybe even the whole world as a, as a as a merely a facet of German internal politics, or rather it doesn't distinguish what is good for it uh, with what is good for Europe. It, it ties them together because uh, Germany conceives itself as post-national, its Europeanness as post-national, and even maybe aspires, certainly in the view of Jürgen Habermas, uh, to dissolve itself into Europe. And that it sees as a good thing that everybody should do. Um, and when it encounters resistance, it thinks uh, that people, that people, that other countries are just being egotistical, um, holding on to, to their national identity instead of dissolving themselves into Europe, not realizing that this Europeanness, which Germany does supposedly without ego, is very much in its interest. It's very much in its in its material interests, specifically those of uh, of, of German export capital, um, and which is especially applies to uh, monetary union. So, I mean, the question, and, and I'm just going to put this out there. We maybe won't discuss this, but you know, listeners, if you want to uh, consider this, um, how do we get beyond the problem of a large country imagining its interests to be those of the wider world, to be the same and identical with those of the wider world? Which, of course, is a question that's usually discussed with regard to the United States. The United States thinking that what's good for it is good for uh, the whole world, ignoring that there actually are genuine conflicts of interest. Um, 
But it happens perhaps on a smaller scale in Europe, where Germany uh, explodes its own issues onto Europe, thinking that they're one and the same. So anyway, thoughts on that, uh, answers on a postcard. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, right, theme, theme four, um, another one which uh, recurs throughout uh, Streak's whole over and not just in this book, uh, which is cosmopolitan delusions. Um, cosmopolitan delusions are seen in Varoufakis's adherence to Europeanism, his insistence that, uh, you know, in his negotiations with the Eurogroup, famously, uh, at the time of the, the Greek crisis, that, you know, he wants, to, he wants to make it all work out, you know, for you, for you and me too, baby, we, we can make this work, this relationship can work. I, we're, we, if we both make sacrifices, we can end up on the same page. Um, in fact, if you, you know, give us a little more, it'll work out for, for the both of us. Um, it's in everyone's interest which obviously it wasn't, um, you know, Varoufakis lost those negotiations. Um, but it's also seen in, um, rather, Streak brings this up in chapter nine in his review of Becker and Fuest's Odysseus Complex, um, which discusses the idea of not necessarily forward into more Europe, into a federal Europe, nor backwards into uh, the nation state, but moving sideways, basically trying to find a pragmatic resolution to Europe's crises. Um, so straight in discussion of that, he notes that if sideways is not an option, then it might be worth trying to move backwards, backwards into the nation state, which of course is, is Strake's preferred solution. Um, he notes that it is striking that the only arguments Becker and Fuest advance against a solution, a solution through dissolution, that is to say, uh, exit back into nation states, um, comes right out of the very inventory of Euro-pious articles of faith that they have always that they have otherwise so refreshingly forsworn. That is to say, this is uh, you know this book by Becker and Fuest. It tries to be pragmatic. It doesn't buy into like all the Euro dreamy bullshit. Uh, it tries to be kind of realistic and pragmatic. But when the idea of perhaps maybe a bit less Europe is suggested, uh, their only answer is to re reiterate pro-European nostrums of, uh, you know, community, cooperation, solidarity, and blah, 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 uh, despite the fact that the reality of the EU is very much non-solidaristic. Um, so I, I guess throughout this, and, and there's also the review of Habermas, which is his, Strake's most pointed arguments against cosmopolitanism, um, is that there's a, a naivety to cosmopolitanism. So in the review of Habermas, Strake says, Habermas can treat really existing politics, you know, the rough and tumble of all politics, conflicts of interests, passions, hostilities, etc., cetera, um, as illegitimate impediments on the way to democracy as it should be, as it should be in Habermas's view, universalistic, dispassionate, global, deliberative, cooperative, and apparently without any need to override obstinate interests in the unlimited accumulation of capital by use of collectively mobilized power and legitimate force. Um, so, you know, Habermas basically finds nations embarrassing, not really for political reasons, but because they don't fit his idea of modernity, of his whole teleology. He wants Habermas, Habermas wants nations to go away so that they stop obstructing the unstoppable progress of economic globalization. And that economic globalization will lead to what Habermas really wants, what he's really concerned with, which is the promotion of moral cosmopolitanism and the existence of nation states, both as imagined communities, as well as material institutional entities, um, for Habermas is just an annoyance and he gets annoyed that the world doesn't conform to that. So the question that that ensues from, from all these uh, examples of streak taking on uh, cosmopolitanism is that why are its adherents so seemingly naive? 
um, why are they so kind of idealist and and why do they have so many blind spots? Um, blind spots in, in Habermas's case is associating Europeanness and his whole idea of moral cosmopolitanism with European Monetary Union, which is just one particular way of governing European society and one which is really damaging. Why is he so wedded to that? And why so why is why does he have such a blind spot? So my question, I guess, what I think we should discuss is can you have a realist? A realist, both realistic, but also realist cosmopolitanism, a cosmopolitanism that really grapples with power. No, no. it's the worst kind of academic question, the kind of thing that I would, that my life would be wasted out at academic conferences with panels where these kinds of questions are asked. Very short answer, straightforward, simple. George? Um, I'd, I, I'm glad that I, don't have to waste my life for academic conferences um but you know you bring that on yourself i guess um but no i yeah i guess i guess to, to kind of tackle the question directly i don't think you can have a realist cosmopolitanism the idea that there's a that just by uh, wishing it was so that we have this um kind of liberal teleology and um, we're all part of the same community completely ignores the fact that we live in a class society. Um, and I think the, there is, I mean, there's, there's, there's a different sort of critique that, that straight doesn't really um, go into. I think his, his, his um, demolition of Habermas is, is sufficient on its own terms, but I think there is a question as to what draws people towards cosmopolitanism, who is particularly attracted by this, um, by this ideology. And I mean, it's, I think it's just the horror the, the fear, the disgust towards hatred of domestic working classes that mean that people look to um, this, this imagined community across Europe rather than um, looking, for, looking for power at home. Um, so I think there's, it's, and it's an important ideology as well. It gives ideological moral cover for neoliberalism in the form of the EU. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, yeah. I don't, I don't have too much to to say in support of of um, cosmopolitanism. Yeah, I, I think one way of also thinking this through is with a counterfactual. I mean, or a hypothetical, which is, you know, what if European elites forced through the construction of Europe um, in in the same way that nation states were built um, through force often. Uh, rather than rather than through kind of any democratic basis. I mean, some were some were were, were founded on democratic uh, revolts from below, um, where nationalism was seen as a revolutionary democratic creed. But in in other cases, it wasn't. You know, France was built from top down, and it created French people. There weren't French people pre-existing before. Maybe around Paris, there were elites who identified themselves as French. But no, but you know, a, across the country, they were Languedoc or they were. Savoy or they were whatever they were created into Frenchmen. So what happened? What would happen if you did the same in Europe? In fact, this is something that I used to be in favor of uh, when I was like maybe 18 or something. I thought just fucking build Europe. Who cares? Who cares if citizens don't like it? Um, the people, the people will like what they get at the end of the day. You create Europe you by force. Yeah. Well, no, but I, you know, I, I think, I think a European super state would be great. I'm so, why not just create that? And then you'll have, um, you'll create a European demos will be created in the same way that French people were created. Um, yeah, they can't. I mean, why but why I mean, not just abolish class society? No, of course they can. Yeah. No, no, of course they can. Yeah, but, exactly. But, but, I mean, I think go, George puts go, it let's, well. I, mean, I, so. I agree. But let, hang on. Let, 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 me just, let me just pursue the, the, the hypothetical for, for the sake of, of the argument that I'm trying to make, which is that even if you were able to do that, 
would would a kind of moral cosmopolitanism ensue, even if people gave up their national attachments? Maybe not. Maybe what you'd end up creating would be a Euro chauvinism, a, a strong imperialist attitudes um, in Europe, which would not at all be the kind of cosmopolitanism that Habermas has in mind. So the, the point being is that merely overcoming the nation state as it currently exists doesn't necessarily lead to the moral cosmopolitanism that, that Habermas has in mind. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right, although that's not the way it's presented. I think the um, the way it's presented is often you're either cosmopolitan or you're nationalist in the sense of being racist, xenophobic, and probably even fascist. Um, so it's all it's always put in identity terms, which of course is not particularly helpful to to kind of practical politics um, or well helpful to some people's um, obfuscations and attempts to, 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 to avoid it to a greater or lesser extent. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a, as I said before, it's part of the the dream of a specific um, fraction of society who, who would like to flee the nation and would, would prefer to not have to, to deal with domestic politics and domestic um, class struggle. Okay, very good. I think we did have one more theme, but I don't know if we're going to have time to fully discuss it because it might spiral off into a very long discussion. We'll try to come back to it instead. Um, but the theme was the future of capitalism. Oh, God, you left all the juicy stuff till the end and now you have to cut it. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> I just want to leave one question hanging, though, which Streak addresses, um, I can't remember where, um, but basically the referring to the notion of consumer societies, individualized societies where we um, aren't grouped together into parties, into civic associations, we're increasingly atomized, um, and in which legitimacy for states is rests on being able to access a world of consumption. Um, of course, that raises the question, what happens if that suddenly gets taken away? Um, then we might really see uh, the legitimacy of, of existing states really crumble. But we're not there just yet. Um, but the question that I want to leave hanging and, and have you maybe mull over, uh, listener, I certainly uh, will mull over it, lots of mulling going on, um, which is that if the problem of the 19th century uh, in terms of polit making political organization, especially radical socialist political organization, was a lumpen proletariat, that it was very hard to organize lumpen proletariat, um, those who um, were bereft of, of land or uh, of any property, but who weren't uh, organized in factories and could therefore be organized in trade unions and, and political parties and so on. So that was a problem in the 19th century. Uh, the problem today is the hedonistic middle class, uh, the, the middle class whose only real engagement or connection to society is through consumption. And these people can't be organized either. And, and I think when Streak says hedonistic middle class, I don't think he just means, uh, you know, the, the kind of well-off, uh, the, the, those working in professional managerial occupations, but probably includes the working class in rich and middle-income countries, all those who um, are described as being middle-class um, by the business press. But of course, there are many proletarians in that, but proletarians who have access to you know, sophisticated consumer goods. So to restate the, the, the question, if the problem of the 19th century is lumpen proletariat, is the problem today the hedonistic middle class? Uh, we'll leave you with that. Um, and just to finish off, I'm going to tell you what's coming up. Um, we've got another reading club, which is being recorded at the very end of this month, will come out at the beginning of February. Um, and it's a book which is much, which is probably a bit more straightforward, 
um, than this one, just insofar as it's on one theme rather than many different themes. We're discussing Richard Tuck's The Left Case for Brexit, looking at arguments for popular sovereignty in a context in which Brexit, uh, which is now, I guess, finally over, um, Brexit was reduced to behind closed doors negotiations over trade. So it never ended up being really the politicizing moment it could have been. So we're going to kind of reflect back on that and reflect forward uh, what the lessons we can draw from it are. That, so uh, that'll be out at the be- beginning of February. But if you want to get your questions in, please do. Uh, that'll be the 28th of January. So get your, you've got two weeks um, to do that. Um, then looking forward, we've got our whole the whole of 2021 basically uh, planned out for this reading club. Um, we hope you're looking forward to it as much as we are. Uh, I think we cover a lot of what we think are really important themes and we hope you agree and will join in. So just to give you a little rundown of what those will be. Uh, we're discussing Deleuze on the Societies of Control, um, which is a not very long essay um, after we will have done a couple of books. And so that's a, a shorter essay. Um, that'll be a very apt one to discuss in the midst of lockdowns. We'll then be discussing in three subsequent reading clubs, Perry Anderson's big three-part essay series on the European Union, which is currently being serialized in the London Review of Books. The third one's just come out. Um, Each one is about 15,000 words, so it's not that long. Uh, It's very much digestible in one sitting, Um, but as always with Perry Anderson essays, it's very rich. There's lots to talk about there. Um, So that'll be three separate reading clubs over the summer. Lots of new words to learn. Lots of new words learned. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, read it with your dictionary in your hand. Um, for the rest of 2021, we're reading works by Slavoj Žižek on post politics. Um, it's a, it's a, something that we discuss in our own book, which will be out on the 25th of June. Um, so this will be a little bit more theoretical elaboration of of what that really means. Michael Lind on class war, on the conflicts within the middle class, between the middle class and the elite, um, the new class war. Then we're discussing Eva Luz's critique of emotional capitalism. So the idea that capitalism is cold and bureaucratic and distant, well, no longer, it seems, capitalism tries to engage us in in ever more emotional ways and indeed uh, commodify our emotions, perhaps even. we're also discussing Michael Lowy's distingu- uh, distinctions between Marxism and Romanticism, which maybe sometimes are confused in the left. So I think that'll be something something to, interesting to explore. Um, we have uh, Elie Zaretsky on psychoanalysis and the spirit of capitalism, looking at the relationship between psychoanalysis and how psychoanalysis has changed over um, the 20th century, as well as how it's influenced the, the spirit of capitalism, different uh, forms of capitalism over the course of the 20th century. And finally, Marshall Berman's classic, All That Is Solid Melts Into Air. If you haven't read it, it's essential. I'm looking forward to rereading it and reading it carefully. Um, and that's a fairly hefty book, but we've left it to the end of the year. Um, the rest are either short books or essays, so should definitely be uh, digestible. It's not too much of a heavy uh, reading burden. So we're looking forward to that. We hope uh, you are as well, and we hope you join us and tell your friends if they uh, might be interested in it as well. That's it for now. Thank you very much. Goodbye.